Hey there, welcome to episode eight of Science and Society. I'm Drew, a med student and fitness junkie. And I'm Liv, a beauty queen turned biochemistry PhD candidate. We're two nerds on a mission to break down the science around us so you can apply it in your life. Just like not all heroes wear capes, not all experts wear lab coats. Turns out that's the case if we're talking about hangovers. On today's episode, we're speaking with the author who rose to the challenge and took it upon himself to find the ultimate cure to man's worst enemy, the hangover. We'll also break down five of the ways alcohol impacts your body's biochemistry. Let's get after it. Shaughnessy Bishop Stahl's first book, Down to This, Squalor and Splendor in a Big City Shantytown, written while living with the homeless, was shortlisted for several prizes, none of which it won. His first novel, Ghosted, was nominated for the Amazon First Novel Award, which he also lost. His work has appeared in dozens of fine publications, most of which no longer exist. He played the role of Jason, a well-dressed, bad-mannered journalist on the hit TV show The Newsroom, in what turned out to be its final season. He used to own a bar in Toronto called The Lowdown, but that didn't really work out either. He is currently recovering from writing this, his latest book, and somehow remains generally optimistic. Hi, welcome to the show. Uh, If it's any comfort, I think a Nobel Prize is headed your way for the work you have put into learning more about hangovers. (laughs) Well, that is very optimistic of you, but thank you, and thanks for the introduction. It's great to be here. So I want to jump right in and ask you, why in the world would you put yourself through this process of writing this book? This was about a 10-year process, you said? Uh, Approximately 10 years of researching hangovers, yeah. Um, Why would I do it? I guess... One answer would be for the betterment of humanity, and the other is that I, I guess I, I was maybe drinking a little bit too much anyway, and uh, figured I'd uh, put it to good use. As budding scientists, we love the, you know, the, for the betterment of humanity. That's our, uh, that's our guiding principle. Well, then we'll stick with that reason. <laughs> you know, I actually made the joke when I was a freshman, and we had just finished our chemistry course that the most important thing I had learned in chemistry was to keep my alcohols and acids straight, which is a good skill to have regardless. So I really resonate with your work and so appreciate it. And I've actually started reading the book, have quite enjoyed it. And I'm in the part where you're jumping off the stratosphere in Vegas. Out of that whole Vegas trip, what was the most miserable experience you had? Because it sounded like quite a trip. Right. So just for your, uh, your listeners, the idea, and this is kind of where the book starts, it was to go to uh, Las Vegas, it being sort of the ground zero of hangovers. And the concept was that I would go to see this guy who is the self-proclaimed hangover doctor who says he's uh, cured more hangovers than anybody in the world. He had a clinic down there called Hangover Heaven. As a journalist, you you often end up sort of piggybacking one gig on another just uh, in order to pay for book research because publishers don't pay you to travel around the world, get drinking, you know? So basically I I got a a gig with the men's magazine to go down there and do this extreme junket where we would be doing things like driving uh, race cars around a 10 turn track and flying jet fighters in a mock dog fight, but real jet fighters, you know, up in the air and shooting bazookas and things like that. And what I would do was, between these things, drink far too much, pass out, then go to the hangover doctor and see if he could put me together enough to then go do the next thing that you would never, ever want to do with a hangover, like jump off the stratosphere, which is the highest, or at the time was the highest, what they call controlled freefall, which is kind of 
a very weird oxymoron. It, it was a terrible idea. And that's where the book starts. So there were a lot of awful things that happened during that trip. Most of them just involved, you know, um, things your listeners might not want to hear about, like vomit and things like that. But I also learned a lot in that trip. And one of the things I took away from it had to do with adrenaline and how adrenaline can counteract some of the most extreme aspects of hangover almost instantly. So the part of the book you're reading, Olivia, right now ends up moving into a kind of a scientific investigation that then took months on my part on, on the effect of adrenaline uh, as a fast sobering uh, mechanism. So once you, you know, I don't want to give away too much of your book in this episode because that would be a shame. But once you embarked on this scientific, you know, dive after your trip in Vegas, what would you say was some of the cooler things you discovered? And did you prefer doing the research the classic way, you know, sitting down and learning and reading? Or did you secretly enjoy the semi-miserable experience of going out and doing the field work? We'll call it that. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. I mean, it was very particular field work. After uh, enough years of quote-unquote field work that just involved drinking too much, you definitely get tired of it. <laughs> and I've always been an avid reader, so, you know, re that kind of research is enjoyable to me. But I was splitting my time pretty much between reading and drinking, but I made sure that the adventure aspects of the book were in some way global. So uh, I ended up going to, I think it was something like 25 or 30 different cities around the world. I went to you know some beautiful places for different kinds of culturally specific hangover cures. Some of them thousands of years old. Some of them you know scientists working on very new attempts and so on. And so you know it was fun to like go to drinking festivals in the Alps and uh, and go to Amsterdam and try out some new kinds of drinks and stuff like that. And uh, you know it's a pretty good time. I must say, splitting time between reading and drinking sounds like a lot of college students, um, four years at, in university. Um, so I'm sure you're not alone in that in that department. I'd already put in my college years, though. So maybe, then I just extended them for an extra decade. Uh, it, perhaps is what happened, yeah. Maybe, perhaps. So as someone who doesn't necessarily have a science background, going into doing some of this more like reading type of research, reading papers, figuring out how maybe alcohol metabolism works, things of that nature. What was maybe the most rewarding part, most challenging? Yeah, no, you're right. I have no scientific background whatsoever. I mean, I, I studied uh, literature and creative writing in university. So I was really flying by the seat of my pants when I was trying to figure out how to uh, scientifically research things. I was basically coming up with my own types of experiments that were maybe double blind, I guess you would call them and so on, but, though I didn't know what that, that that term existed. I was just like, this might work and that might work. But the, but the other thing, the other thing is that so little research, so little actual scientific research has been done on hangovers over the years that Weirdly, I very quickly became an expert in a field that just had no experts. So even though I'm a terrible scientist, I'm pretty well the best hangover scientist around because there, aren't, there are barely any of them. But I had to very quickly learn a lot about body chemistry, a lot about how alcohol works, both 
as you know what it is it's a fascinating substance and then how it interacts with you know aspects of our our body chemistry you know just through reading but i also talked to a hell of a lot of real scientists you know as a journalist i'm used to interviewing people and so i just treated it as an interview assignment a lot of the time rather than being overwhelmed by the scientific complexity of it and it's part of why the book took me 10 years though to write is that it's a uh, it's a very complicated subject and i was starting from from scratch that's actually one of the first things i noticed when we were trying to plan this episode and put things together is that there is really so little research and so little information on hangovers and you know, we understand alcohol pretty well, and we understand the bad things it does to you. But it was interesting to see, you know, there, there's centers for everything now. I've seen centers for sleep studies, I've seen centers for traditional medicine, and you just do not see any really pods or groups of, or, or networks of people studying something that is so common. You know what I mean? I mean, look at any, outside of COVID, any city, if you see it on a Saturday morning, you're seeing, you know, just swarms of people who would benefit so greatly if there really was a hangover cure. It's hugely, hugely counterintuitive that it is, you know, compared to most maladies, probably one of the most common in history. Uh, and yet we have spent so little time really trying to understand it. And a, lo a lot of the book becomes about that, about that sort of strange almost spiritual conflict uh, as to why, why we seem so reticent to not only, well, the other thing is that in the, I don't want to give too much away, but I did essentially find cures for the hangover <laughs> and other people have too. It's, but there's this real reticence for anybody to actually believe it. It's like we have this, you know, people always say, you know, wow, if you found a cure for the hangover, you'd be rich. Uh, I found a cure for the hangover and people take it and it works and I'm not rich <laughs> because um, there seems to be a really bizarre breach between experience and acceptance of this. And maybe there's something built into our, you know, into the way we've developed as humans that prevents us from believing such a thing because it would be too dangerous if we could all drink to abandon without any repercussions you know the, the whole world would well maybe look like the world looks right now so I don't know. <laughs> and you know i think one of my favorite parts that i've read so far was kind of this analysis of how hangovers have been written about and treated throughout human history and how they've always been almost like this weird you know hocus pocus thing that happens to people after they drink the way the ancient Greeks or the ancient Romans explained it as this consequence of the gods. And when you really boil it down, we hardly know any more now, today, in modern society than we did way back when. So again, without spoiling too much, I did want to ask you, what was the least successful cure you tried? Or maybe some of the most bizarre or uncomfortable things that are just not worth it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, there were so many of those. One very common hangover, quote-unquote, cure in Victorian England, for example, was to mix chimney soot into milk and drink it 
before imbibing. And so you would have actually chimney sweeps would make extra money selling bags of soot to people around Christmas time. So, you know, and I actually, that was one of my Christmas experiments. I mixed, you know, I got, went to my parents' house and scraped their chimney and mixed it with, uh, with some warm milk. It became very purple and drank quite a lot of it. And I, I, I mixed that with another old timey cure, which was to drink a cup of olive oil before drinking as so I poach your stomach. And I don't know if it was just the mix of these two very bad ideas combined with excessive Christmas drinking, but that was probably the worst boxing day I've ever had. <laughs> oh my goodness. So three negatives still make a negative. Two negatives maybe make a positive. Three negatives still make a negative. um yeah and you know then there are just some very kind of weird ones like in in puerto rico they they're they're still they're accustomed to put a wedge of lemon in your armpit while drinking uh, is is supposed to help in some way that there's a lot of these kind of cultural um cures that seem to be almost like broken telephone over centuries where you can't really trace back how it started. But then there are others that weirdly have a lot of reason to them. You know, if you look at, for example, the ancient Romans obsession with eating different kinds of bird's eggs along with drinking. And even if you look at North American or British breakfast culture that all centers around chicken eggs, uh, we now know that in fowl or in bird eggs, is an amino acid called L-cysteine, which is one of the main ingredients in what became my kind of, you know, effective cure. Then there are other things like, well, if you look at the chimney sweep idea, basically what you're doing is putting a form of carbon into your body, right? Which also is uh, used, I don't know if you know, like in, in emergency rooms, people are fed, you know, uh, large amounts of charcoal, uh, essentially, or, and had been for years to try to detoxify their systems if they're having uh, uh, an overdose of some sort. So, I mean, there are like aspects of all these attempts over the years that may, do make some sense. It's just that how, how they're applied usually doesn't really work. And th- there are dozens and dozens of examples that I could give. I think that's really interesting that you mentioned all these different cultural and just various, not necessarily scientifically grounded cures, because I think that might be a reason there is a lack of adherence to or uptake of the cure that you find in your research, which is, it's interesting, it's almost like, you know, people start drinking at various ages, right? Some people super young, some people not till they're in their 20s, not some people not at all, but whenever you start the people you first drink with, I feel like take away and shade the way you think about drinking and think about hangovers and think about the whole concept of drinking and everything centered around it. So that cultural aspect, I don't know, but it sounds like it'd be a big reason why we're not adopting maybe a universal hangover cure. Yeah, there's so much strange psychology that goes along with alcohol consumption in every aspect of it, whether it has to do with the manifestation of how, how like in 
alcohol is one of these things that works very differently for almost every person on the planet. We all kind of assume that drunkenness feels the same for everyone, but it doesn't the more you research it. And then that's the same for every aspect of alcohol. It's a very mysterious phenomenon, what happens when we drink. And, and, and people too often think that, oh, it's just like some other drug. But the thing is that the other recreational or medicinal drugs that, that we've developed and that people take really target one aspect of the brain or body, whereas alcohol kind of has this cat's paw effect where it um, swats at your whole brain <laughs> and floods <laughs> your whole body and creates so many different domino effects, both mentally and physically, that it's, it's more of a phenomenon than it is just a simple drink or drug, you know? I actually wanted to ask you if you ever you know, ended up discovering this or maybe like looked into it or if you had any opinion on it, how much do you think a placebo plays into it? Like if I were to hand someone this pill, whatever it is, and with conviction, get them to believe that it is the truest hangover cure out there, will it help them? Or is it really so much more complicated than that? I think it very much could because uh, also through my research, I had to learn about what placebo, what the placebo effect is. And I think a lot of people misunderstand the placebo effect. You guys probably know more than about this than I do, having scientific backgrounds. But, you know, when we're taking a pill, of course, so often, it's not that the cure is in the pill, right? It's that the cure is in our body, and the pill creates some sort of mechanism to release more of some chemical that's already created in our body. So in that way, a pill or whatever is more like just a key, you know, that unlocks something that then creates a chemical reaction that helps our body in some way. And so in that way, a placebo is just a different kind of key because if it can make your body think that something needs to be done, then and your body starts to do it. <laughs> if you see what I mean, it's not, it's not a hocus pocus psychology thing. It's that those th things actually start to happen in your body, right? And so I don't know if that really answers your question, but I think that it, why it pertains so much, something like the placebo effect to hangovers, is that in some way, hangovers are not necessarily just created by alcohol or created by the withdrawal of alcohol from the body, a lot of what a hangover is, or, or as, as far as I've learned, and I think I'm right, is an overreaction by the body to an assumed risk, right? So it's like when a certain amount of alcohol enters the body, the body says, oh no, this is toxic, this is poison, and hugely overreacts to that threat. And in that overreaction, which we would call maybe uh, an extreme immune response, that's what so many of the effects we're feeling are, like inflammation and all these different things that create this domino effect. You know, when we talk about uh, hangovers, so many of us think it's just dehydration. But if it was just dehydration, you could just drink a lot of water and feel better. And that's not really how it if works. If only it was that easy. If only, right. <laughs> and so, one, sure, it's dehydration to one degree. But the real problem is that we can't rehydrate because all of our 
organs are inflamed and when they get inflamed, they become rigid and they can't absorb water. So no matter how much water you drink, you're not going to rehydrate. And that inf inflammation is an immune response. So it's this whole real domino effect that is essentially our body trying to save itself that is making us so sick. You know, I've never heard, I mean, first of all, I don't think we're really taught about hangovers as much as we are about the dangerous effects of alcohol just as its own thing. But I've never heard it be explained as an immune response. That actually makes a lot of sense. Especially from an evolutionary perspective. I mean, think about it. Right, right. And you know, it's crazy how much, I mean, I can't remember when the first time we were taught about illegal substances were in school. I want to say sixth or seventh grade. I mean, pretty early on, they start telling you how bad these things are for you and why you shouldn't do them. But never, ever, ever are we ever taught about hangovers. And, you know, alcohol is a legal substance once you're 21 here in the U.S. 18, I believe, in Canada, right? It's 19, 19. in Canada, but in Quebec, it's 18, and in a couple of the maritime provinces, 18. Maybe Alberta. That's complicated. That's <laughs> with everything with alcohol, but yeah. So, you know, we're not taught how to properly deal with this. And I think part of it comes from the fact that people don't know. And part of it comes from the fact that no one's actively really trying to figure it out. So there's no new information to tell people, except for this book now, which is so exciting. And I'm actually looking forward to finishing it for this reason. So I'm glad you're not spoiling it, even for my sake. I like a good surprise. Sure. I'd also love to talk to you both after you finish reading the book, too, because you'll have, you'll have all sorts of other questions as well, I'm sure. Absolutely. But um, where you'll get to in the book eventually is also how spiritually and legally our concepts around alcohol have done 180s over the, over the years. I mean, it used to be Christianity is a wine-based religion. It's the blood of Christ and all that, uh, which was taken almost directly from the Dionysian spiritual belief in the wine gods and so on. And at some point when the church lost control of wine production, which was its main source of income, is when suddenly alcohol became demonized, you know, because the churches were suddenly in direct competition with bars, because that's where people were going instead of the church. And that's when things like the hangover were seen as, you know, there's your instant karma, or there's your like immediate fall from grace or something like that. Whereas before, it, there was almost an embracing like, you know, you're just exhausted from being having been so spiritual. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, um, so it, it's really strange how over, throughout history, we've applied all sorts of spiritual and psychological ends of the spectrum to these ideas, you know. Imagine emailing your employer that you'll be late to work because you're exhausted from being so spiritual. How <laughs> well, would they take I, it? <laughs> well, it's interesting because your questions are great because in different cultures, even now, not just in different epochs and different times, but in different cultures now, that phone call to your boss would be received very differently in different places. For example, in Japan, a hangover is seen as a, a noble necessity, right? So because let's say you were out with your boss at dinner the night before, you, you are expected to then share with him or her the next day how awful you feel to prove that you had a good time the night before. That's hilarious. Whereas in, let's say, most <laughs> Western 
cultures, we're supposed to hide it. Even if we were all plastered the night before, we're all supposed to act at work like we're just fine, right? Right. <laughs> Even within, you know, that there, there used to be this tradition in Japan, you know, 100 years ago. And so after you would ha have a party, the host would expect to be written letters the next day in some sort of shaky hand describing how awful they feel today. Like that was your thank you for the party letter. It's very opposite to sort of the stoic British, you know, stiff upper lip where you're just supposed to be able to take it and work through it. And even now, there are very different concepts around the embarrassment level of hangover and stuff in different cultures found this one, I think it was in Korea, I could be wrong though, but you could basically take lessons on how to appear drunk so that when you went to a party, if you didn't want to drink, you still were involved with the festivities, <laughs> you know, so wow. like, which is almost the opposite of what we're taught here. Don't look drunk, don't seem drunk, right? And even those things that seem so obvious or seem like human reactions to things are cultural reactions to things. It's actually really fascinating because if you look at hangovers as somewhat of, of an ailment, there's no ailment, I think, that comes even close to how culturally significant it is. You know, I mean, obviously there are other diseases and illnesses that we take very seriously as people, you know, sitting here in the midst of a pandemic, obviously. I think that all makes sense to us now. But like the hangover movies are literally based on this phenomenon of, of this ailment that happens to you if you drink too much the night before. And I think that is so fascinating. And one of the most interesting parts of all this is how psychologically and culturally impacted it is. And I remember learning about a study that was done. It was basically four different groups of people. Half of them were actually drinking alcohol, half of them were not. And within each of those two groups, one half was told that they were drinking and the other half was told they weren't drinking. So you basically had two groups that were flip-flopped either way. And whether or not people were aware that they were drinking alcohol or not drinking alcohol impacted how drunk they felt and how much fun they thought they were having. And even that on its own, I think is so crazy because you don't realize how much mental control you have over these sorts of things. But that's where I think your point about adrenaline was really interesting, is how the different things that go on in our brains and bodies can kind of tweak how we perceive them. The way we perceive how miserable we are is somewhat under our control which is kind of scary. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, yeah, it's just, the more you look into this stuff, the more you, the more questions you have of not just of other people, but of yourself. Like how, how much am I actually, like you just said, in control of anything? <laughs> and the answer becomes, I have no idea, you know? Before we wrap this up, Without revealing the actual cure itself, do you have any one other cool takeaway or perhaps a drink suggestion or a suggestion if anyone's looking for a place to travel that you found particularly exciting? What is one thing you would wish us all well with? Interesting. Let me think about that for a sec. Okay. One of the, I think, most viscerally both enjoyable and freaky hangover cures I tried was... If in, uh, in Austria, there's an ancient remedy for all sorts of ailments that is essentially a hay burial. So you drive up into, these, in, up into the Alps, and I, I happen to do it uh, during um, drinking festival season, had a lot of drinks, and then they 
take you down into this ancient kind of crypt where there's this boiling pot of all these hundreds of different hay and grasses from all the surrounding area there. And then they put you in a coffin and they fill the coffin with this emulsion of hay and water. And you basically lie in this coffin in a hay bath for about half an hour in the darkness with a little bit of candlelight. And then they take you out of that and they bury you in hay and leave you under this stack of hay for a while. And, and, and you're, you know, you're kind of, na- and you're naked. <laughs> so you, then, then eventually they lift you out of this thing. And it's basically an ancient uh, rebirth ceremony that is wow. specifically geared towards <laughs> getting rid of a hangover. <laughs> and I got to say it, it was probably one of the more emotional and affecting experiences I've had. And the moment I came back out of the crypt and saw, you know, the dark night, which was no longer dark, it was like almost bright blue. I was ready for another drink and went and had some wonderful orange wine from Austria. Um, so that's not the cure. That's not the one that's at the end of the book. But, there's the, but that's, that's one that I would actually recommend just because of the sort of strange beauty of it. Talk about getting spiritual. Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. We almost made it to the end of the episode without a joke. True. <laughs> almost. You know, my parents actually grew up in Poland. I'm going to have to ask them if they know of any interesting traditional cultural cures to the hangover, which they joke all the time. I mean, Eastern Europe has a notoriety for its vodka consumption. The the book was translated into Polish. Thank goodness. You saved our country. (laughs) There you go. I think the Polish version has has already come out. Um, But yeah, yeah, see see what they think. All right. Well, thank you so much to everyone listening. Go and check out this book. It is absolutely phenomenal. I'm not a funny person by any means, but Sean Essie is. And this book is, like, I, I started bursting out laughing on a flight. And, you know, no one likes noise or human contact anymore, especially on a flight when you're sitting next to somebody. So I'm, like, cackling through this mask, and the man next to me was just not having any of it. But I was having a wonderful time reading this book on this flight. So highly recommend you all start and learn for yourself what the cure is because there's one out there. And I'm pretty excited to learn about it. Oh, without a doubt. That would be a great uh, blurb for the book that would have made no sense when it came out, which is just, I laughed through my mask, you know? (laughs) 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 world we live in now. (laughs) If you ever release a new edition, go ahead and you can quote me, add me to the back where all the people with, you know, credentials to review books go. I can just, uh, in small font at the bottom. (laughs) You probably be famous by then too. Gosh, fingers crossed. Yeah, this was recorded before Miss USA, and we'll see how that all goes after this is released. Who knows? I might be using the cure after Miss USA to celebrate and or commemorate the effort. (laughs) We are so excited to have been able to talk to you today. Thank you so much for being on our show. I'm going to get to reading. (laughs) Okay, so much, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, Drew, suddenly I'm definitely reconsidering a formal PhD and thinking about some field research. But this all brings us to a new segment, Learning with Liv. I've compiled some of Shaughnessy's research as well as some of my own, and we'll be talking about five of the biochemical processes of alcohol consumption. I feel like a little kid getting ready for science class, and it's like a science fair day. We're like, ooh, what's, what's, what's everybody, what did everybody do? 
Well, I'm here to tell you. So for starters, this one's pretty basic. Alcohol is a diuretic, which means that when you drink alcohol, your renal system, which is what you definitely want to associate with your kidneys, your bladder, your urine, it begins to remove fluid from your blood supply, which is all fun and games, except that it's removing that fluid from your blood supply at a much higher rate than you want it to be removed. And the lost fluid also takes electrolytes, potassium, and magnesium with it, all of which your cells literally need to function. So that's what causes that feeling of dehydration after you're drinking for a couple hours and the feeling of general not-so-great function. Totally makes sense. That's why my mouth feels like the Sahara Desert, or, you know, when I wake up at 8.30 in the morning after a, after a few adult beverages the night before. Ooh, you're crazy. All right, well, are you ready for number two? Always. So this one's a little bit more technical. The density of alcohol is actually what causes the dizziness and hearing loss that you experience. Turns out that it has a lower density than the fluid in your inner ear. And when you drink, some of that alcohol is actually absorbed by the fluid in your inner ear and changes its composition. And because your inner ear fluid helps your body balance, that change in composition actually leads you to become dizzy and clumsy. That is crazy that the alcohol actually makes its way into your inner ear. Because I remember the first time learning about balance and how it's all related to your inner ear. That that kind of threw me for a loop. Um, but still so interesting that it gets its way up there and then is able to just mess with your balance. Right. And actually, this is a total tangent, but Olympic ice skaters and figure skaters, their inner ear actually has to become accustomed to how rapidly they spin, which is why they don't become so dizzy when they spin so much on the ice because they've been doing it their whole life. Their inner ear fluid and their body chemistry has adjusted to that that rate of rotation. Isn't that crazy? So I've been lied to my whole life in, se- in saying that they just focus on a spot and focus on that spot. No. Nope. It's their inner ear. Wow. Okay. O- okay. <laughs> All right. Ready? Number three? Yep. So alcohol increases the acid production in your stomach, which, again, your stomach produces acid anyway. Actually, it's the same acid that is used in paint peelers and stone polishers, hydrochloric acid, HCl. So you got some gnarly stuff down in the stomach regardless. However, as you drink, the alcohol is passing through the lining of your stomach, which inflames your cells. It inflames a lot of organs in the body too, making it a lot harder for those organs to function, let go of toxins, take in water, again, makes you feel dehydrated. But as the alcohol moves through the stomach lining, it causes your stomach to produce even more acid, which is what makes you feel absolutely awful. Again, totally makes sense if we think about the way our bodies tightly regulate pH and acidity, basicity, just a little bit extra, you know, acid or base in the system can really throw you for a loop. So I totally get it. Right, right. So... Here's another more technical one. What number are we on now? We're on number four. As you drink, you're increasing free radicals in the body, which the liver produces in an attempt to deal with the alcohol intake. So let's back that up. What are free radicals? Free radicals are actually corrosive and highly reactive molecules. Correct me if I'm wrong, Mr. Medical Student, but they have a single free electron, which makes them highly reactive with other compounds in the body. Am I correct here? That would be spot on. All right, so those single free electron molecules can really cause some awful, awful things in the body if they're present in the body for high levels over a long period of time. That is what eventually alcoholism kind of 
becomes is an overexposure to your body's organs to those free radicals that build up over time as your liver overproduces them. So in the right amount, they actually help deal with the alcohol presence in the liver. However, if you have too much of them for too long of a period of time, they can lead to diseases and serious health problems. And correct me if I'm wrong, but can't free radical damage lead to DNA mutation and cancer and things of that nature? Yeah, yeah. Free radicals can react with DNA and genetic material. So it definitely can mess with a lot of other systems in the body. Which is crazy because you think, you know, you see some studies that are like, oh, it's good to have, you know, one drink a day or one drink a week or it's bad to drink at all. And it, it just it just makes you think like how to what extent What's can our benchmark? body. Yeah. To what extent can our bodies tolerate it? I actually have read quite a few times that one glass of red wine a day because of the antioxidants in it is potentially good for the body. I think that. You know, it's all about finding the middle ground and everything in moderation. Absolutely. And for number five, we are going back into the world of biology and talking about enzymes. And several enzymes are necessary for the breakdown of alcohol, but sometimes they can't keep up. So for starters, alcohol dehydrogenase is the enzyme that begins the breakdown of alcohol. When you drink too fast, the alcohol dehydrogenase can't keep up, resulting in a buildup of its product, acetaldehyde. Ironically, acetaldehyde is what causes vomiting and massive headaches, but only when combined with alcohol. So when you overrun your system, you are actually kind of creating this reaction because your body's trying to break down the alcohol, but because you've put too much alcohol in it, that combination of acetaldehyde and the alcohol that you're still putting in your body is actually what makes you sick. So your body's kind of hurting itself in a way. So something actually interesting about acetaldehyde, um, that is the the molecule that gives us this adverse reaction. And a little genetics bent here, acetaldehyde dehydrogenase, which is the enzyme that gets rid of acetaldehyde, actually is different throughout populations in the world. So different people get rid of and tolerate alcohol to different extents just based on their heritage and where they come from and where their genetic ancestry lies, which is kind of cool. Cool. And thank you for finishing that process. Yeah. So that's the second enzyme involved. And actually, this reminds me of our biochemistry class uh, sophomore year. It turns out that vitamin B12 is necessary for the function of alcohol dehydrogenase. So, you know, this isn't necessarily a cure because you will have to read the book to find that out. But if you take vitamin B12 before or immediately after going out, you're helping that enzyme function because it does need B12 to properly break down alcohol. Mind is blown. Is that one of the most memorable things from that class? Yes. Unfortunately, the Krebs cycle did not quite stick as well. Well, I'll tell you what. The late night post-grant proposal writing that Mead came in with was uh, was also very memorable. True. True. That whole class was pretty pretty solid. Well, that is all for Learning with Liv and also all for this week's episode. You can follow us on Instagram at Science and Society to catch our new releases, upcoming topics, and our science shenanigans. And of course, peace, love, and science.